Hi, thanks for joining us again for our study in the book of Numbers, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're in Numbers chapter 14. We're going to finish that out in our study today. We've been uh, in Numbers 13 and 14 for uh, about three lessons now, but there's a reason. This is a section of scripture that is a linchpin, a big moment in the history of the Bible, in the story of what is happening. This is a moment in Israel's history, as we talked last time, it's a dark day. It's a difficult time. And we left off last time looking about the responses and what were going to be the responses that we find in Numbers chapter 14 when we look at this story. You know, when I thought about it and I was watching a TV show that I enjoy uh, when I really want to get my inner geek on and just sit down and chill, it's called The Repair Shop. And The Repair Shop, it's, uh, it's based on a tiny shop in England. And uh, there's this uh, gentleman, his name is Jay Blades. He is a, an expert repairman. He does a lot of woodworking and woodcraft, and he works with antiques and vintage items to restore them uh, either to their former glory or something that is completely uh, crushed or annihilated, trying to put it back together uh, so people can have those keepsakes and those memories that they've had through the years. And when, when I watch this show, I'm always amazed to watch the different skill levels of the, artist, uh, the craftsmen there. There are some who are really good with uh, redoing teddy bears. There's two ladies who do a fabulous job with it. There's one gentleman who is just an amazing woodworker, even, even on the, the level of this gentleman, Jay. There's one who's a clock, clocksmith and works with the clocks and, and watches. And just watching how they can put something together. But what's interesting is that every once in a while, someone will bring an item in. Often, it's often ceramics or a, a vase or a vase, as they would say. And uh, they bring it in. And they'll set it there, and you look at this, and you're like, yeah, somebody tried to fix this on their own. You know, a little bit of super glue, a little bit of, you know, silly putty or something, and they they put it together, and the people actually have to take it apart in order to put it back together. And there is a direct difference between the way that somebody who's a hack puts it together and somebody who is a professional puts it back together. And in Numbers 14, Israel is like a broken vase, they are, in, they are in shambles. And when we get to Numbers chapter 14, we're going to see the response of a craftsman, a spiritual craftsman through Moses. And then we're going to see the presumptuous hacks of the, the Israelites trying to put things and make things right together and put it, all, put it all back together. And what we have are two diametrically opposed uh, responses to God's word in this passage. So we want to look at those this, this evening or this morning or whenever you're listening to this. But let's, let's take some time to look a little bit further into Numbers 14. So how did we get here? How did we get into Numbers 14? If you remember in Numbers chapter 14 how we got there, we got there by Israel following the providential leading of God. They're following the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. They're, they're working their way through the wilderness. They're experiencing God's daily provisions. They're trusting in the watchful protection of God. And although there's grumbling along the way, we see that the Lord is leading them through and to, through the wilderness to the promised land. While going through there, there's the stop at Sinai where they get the covenant and then they move their way as we've been in numbers here all the way. They've left the Mount Sinai and they've now arrived at Kadesh Barnea. And they're there at this oasis and they are going to send in, Moses and the people are going to send in 12 spies, one from each tribe, 
into the land. And as they go into the land, they're going to spy out the land and they come back, as we saw in the last, uh, the last two times here, they come back with what the Lord calls an evil report. It's, there's a mixed, mixed perspective between Joshua and Caleb who are going to say, hey, we are poised to follow our powerful God into the land. And we're able to go, let's go forward, let's do this. And the evil spies, the other 10 who say, no, we can't do this. Those people are giants. They're massive. The land of ours, the, the human people like pray, we can't go into this. And so what happens is their unbelief and their fear of this evil report begins to spread to the people. And the people begin to get so nervous and so upset that by the time we get to chapter 14 and verse number uh, 5, it says, yeah, they, or verse 4, they say, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. And then by the time you get to verse 10, there is a full-blown mutiny on hand. The people are ready to take up stones and they're ready to stone not only Moses, but Aaron and Joshua and Caleb and these leaders who are standing for righteousness. And the, the group is ready to come against them. And what do we have in verse 10? We have not just the stoning, but we have the protection of God coming in. And God stops this. The, the glory of God, like a consuming fire, shows up and stops the people. And then God is going to speak to Moses. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 11 and 12, where Moses and God are going to have a quick personal conversation. And God is going to look at them and say, okay, there is, this is it. They have provoked me. They have caused me to do something back against them. And it's because of their unbelief. And so God is going to bring divine judgment that is going to happen here because of the people's rebellion, because of their unbelief, because of their choosing to do it their way and not God's way, and to live in fear and to live in, uh, in unbelief of what God is able to do through his power and his protection, his provision, and his goodness and his grace. They look and say, no, no, we're not going in. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to bring them, verse 11, uh, verse 12. I will smite them with a pestilence. I will disinherit them. I will make thee a greater nation, mightier than they. So he's like, I'm going I'm to bring this divine judgment, this pestilence against them, whether it was a full plague or what it was going to do. But he says, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to disinherit them. In other words, somebody else is going to get to take their place. They forfeited their right to be in this, this uh, divine special place in my heart and in, in my ways and my plan. And God says, I am done with them. And Moses, you're going to be the one. I'm going to start it over with you, which is exactly what he did earlier, said earlier in Exodus 34. And Moses responds in the exact same way. So God says, Moses, I'm done with them. I'm starting with you. And we talked about that last time in our, in our message. But look at what happens. The initial verdict here is the threat of death upon the people. He's going to say, I'm done. I'm beginning Israel all over again with you, Moses. And Moses' response, almost as if on cue, begins to intercede on behalf of the people. In verses 12, or verse 13, down, down through verse 19, you're going to have Moses going to... God on behalf of the people. He's going to intercede. Now, before we jump into that, place yourself in Moses' sandals for a second. Think about his perspective here. How would you respond? I'm going to ask you in a second, what would you do? Think about it. You have just laid yourself on the line for these people in front of Pharaoh, the world power, 
multiple times. You have taken these people and pled with them multiple times to be right with God. You have led the people through, out of bondage, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. You've been the one who's been the mouthpiece of God to the people and for the people to God. When they were complaining about not having water or food, uh, meat, he was the one who went to God on their behalf. And so he's provided that for them. He's brought them the covenant of God by which God is going to bless them. He's the one who says, this is what God has said. I have spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Here's what he has for us. So you're, you're doing all these things. You have endured multiple complaints, both public and personal attacks, about your leadership, about your ability, about your choice in your spouse, about um, how good and, or inept you have been in leading us and directing us, that you've brought us out here to kill us. You don't have our best interest at heart, Moses. You don't really like us. And there's all these attacks that are happening. You've been told that you're not a competent leader, that we want another one. You've just been uh, almost stoned. And now God is going to say to you, I'm done with them. I'm going to start over with you. What would you do? There was, a, there was a TV show back when I was in early 90s, back in uh, middle school, early high school, and it was called What Would You Do? And they would, they would show the audience, this family, and all these different things, and they would bring them up to a, a point, and then they would stop. And then they would pull the audience and say, okay, what would you do? Would you do A or would you do B? And whatever happened, that family had to act that out. Sometimes it was pies in the face. Sometimes it was just all the weird stuff that junior high boys think is really funny and really cool. But this is a situation where it's not funny. God looks at Moses and says, I'm done with them. You're Moses. How would you respond in your humanity? Maybe you're as godly as Moses. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're like me. You're like, finally, God, you, you finally see the light. You finally see what these people you've given to me are like. Or maybe you're like, I totally agree. Flame them all. You ever feel like that? You ever look around our culture and sometimes you're like, I don't like where we're going. I don't like what's happening. If God would just open his eyes and see everything that's happening, he should just flame everybody and let's start over and like, let's just have a holy, pure church and that'll be the whole world. And we get, we've, we've heard those comments, like just, you know, just do away with them. But what does Moses do? What does he do when he sees an entire group of people condemned to eternal separation from God? He prays. He responds in prayer. He intercedes for them. Now Moses' intercession for a broken people is going to be evidenced here. In, verse, in these verses, the next 13 through 19. But what is intercession? Before we just jump in and we throw a big, a big theological word around that we hear, what is intercession? Intercession is an earnest plea or appeal on behalf of another. It's a mediation. It is somebody going on behalf of or for the sake of another individual. In the spiritual sense, intercession is this earnest prayer that we offer on behalf of another person. It's, it's going to relinquish the focus on ourselves, on our own personal needs, on our own personal agendas. And it's going to focus all of our faith and prayer on the attention of another. It's looking and saying, God, I'm not going to take time right now to pray for my needs. 
I'm not going to take time to pray for what I want or the agendas that I have. I'm going to take time to intercede on behalf of other people. And not just other believers, but other people who are rebelling against you, God. Other people who are eternally separated from you. Because I see that as so important, God, that I am going to set aside my personal need to eat, to fast and pray for the souls of my neighbors. That I am going to take time out of my day and my agendas and my things that I have to get done to intercede and pray for my friends and co-workers who need to be saved. Because right now, they are broken, they are eternally separate from you, and that concerns me, and so I am going to intercede on behalf of them. Intercession is more than just a simple act of, okay, I prayed for somebody. It is manifesting ourselves in genuine concern. It's giving up of our own times, our own agendas, our own ways, our own plans, in order to set ourselves out there. It goes on maybe even as far as speaking to them. But we want to intercede, like Moses, on behalf of broken people. Not just for our own personal gain. If Moses just prayed for his own personal gain, he would not have prayed for the people. The best thing for him would have been to not pray for them like God, annihilate them all, and start over with him. But he did not have that as a personal agenda. Why not? It's interesting, J.C. Ryle, who's an old theologian, but a really deep theologian, he says this. He says, we struggle with intercession because we are all selfish by nature. And our selfishness is very apt to stick to us even after we are converted. There is a tendency in us to think only of our spiritual needs and our own spiritual conflict and our own spiritual progress in religion while forgetting others. I think we can even go a little bit further and say, you know, there's times that we, we make ourselves feel good with that comment by saying, well, I prayed for the other people at church. I interceded on their behalf. And I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. We need to continue to intercede on behalf of those who need physical help and they, those who need the spiritual help. But what about our intercession for the millions and millions of people in this world who are diametrically opposed to our beliefs? who right now are rebels against God. Not because they think they are, but because God's word says that's what they are. They are at enmity with God. They have said, we don't want God. We don't want God's ways. And what do we do? Do we look and just say, well, flame them, God. Well, that's their loss. Or do we find ourselves like Moses, brokenhearted over the individuals who have a different opinion? a different worldview, a different perspective on life than we do. We need to be interceding deeply as God's people on behalf of the lost. You ask any of our missionaries and they will tell you 100% intercessory prayer is so vital. We need to be interceding for our missionaries, for their fields, and for our field here in the Lebanon County. Why did Moses instinctively intercede for the people. I believe when we look at Moses' intercessory prayer, we will understand why he just jumped at it right away. Because he is obsessed. Why did he do it right away? Because he is obsessed with God's glory. 
And you see in verses 13 through 16, Moses said unto the Lord, then the Egyptians shall hear it. So he's saying, God, if, if you just, you, you wipe them all out, the Egyptians will hear it. For you brought those people out from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, and thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by day in a pillar by, of cloud, and by night a pillar of fire. So Moses looks and says, Lord, if you do this, look what happens. He's going to plead on God's glory. He's going to plead for the Israelites. I want to see you glorify God, so please don't just wipe them out. He says, if the Lord blots out the Israelites, the Gentile nations are going to hear about it. And they may misunderstand your reasons, God. The Gentiles have heard the name of the Lord linked to these people. He says, you've brought them out of Egypt. You brought them through the wilderness. And if God, if you were to kill them now, the nations might think that it's because you were unable to bring them into the promised land. That you couldn't defeat the Canaanites. That you were not powerful enough. That you were not strong enough, God. And that would confirm these Gentiles' unbelief in God. And God, I don't want them to, to have unbelief in you. I want them to believe in you. I want them to see your power. I want them to follow after you. We know that happens. Later on, when we get to Joshua, remember Rahab? Rahab's already saying, man, we've heard about your God. And we've heard what he has done and how strong and mighty and powerful he is because of God's faithfulness, because of God's glory. And so Moses is looking and saying, the Lord's glory might be tarnished. God, don't wipe them all out and start over with me because I don't want your name to be diminished. I want you to be exalted, God. And so he's obsessed with the glory of God. But he also understands that God is just. So he takes God's glory. He says, I want you to be elevated. I want you to be lifted up. But I also understand, God, that you are just. The children of Israel have earned this verdict. They deserve to be punished. They are still culpable for their sins. And they've earned this eternal separation from you. They have chosen this God-free lifestyle that we talked about in chapter 13. God's passion for his glory means that he could not overlook sin. And he still cannot overlook sin. So Moses understands, God, you are to be glorified. You are to be exalted. And our decisions as a nation have set us at odds against you. But God, I am asking that I know what your justice is. And I know that means that they are all to be wiped out. I understand that. You have the right to condemn them through perfect justice. And Moses understood seemingly more than the people did. He understood that the, their, their uh, situation was extremely bleak. The people we're going to see in a moment here, they, they don't get that. But Moses is like, wow, this is, we are in a bad situation. We are in a bad spot with God. And he understood the justice of God, but he understood even so, and he believed in the mercy of God. Look, look a little bit further. So he says, um, verse, verse 15, if you kill all the people as one man, then the nations will have uh, heard the fame of you and they'll speak saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore unto them. So God, your, your glory will be diminished because your word will be invalidated because you said you could do this and now you can't. We don't want that God. We want you to be exalted 
Therefore, he's slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great according as you have spoken. Notice where Moses is going to say, I I know where your true power is. He looks to God's mercy, God's grace, as powerful. Do we often see mercy as weakness? No, we just got to deal with it, and we got to hit them hard. We got to get it back. He says, man, God's, God's mercy, it's powerful. It is strong. He says, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children and upon the third and the fourth generations. So what's he saying? Moses is going to plead to God on the basis of not only his glory, but on the mercy because he understands that God is just and these people need to be punished. So God's power is shown through his mercy. He quotes to him Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, where God says, I am this. I am long-suffering. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. He says, I'm forgiving. I forgive sin and rebellion. Yet, I won't leave the guilty unpunished. You know, sadly, in our, in our culture and in our society, in Christianity especially, we tend to hear people focus on the first two. Where God is slow to anger and he abounds in love. And it's all about just God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. And we need to be about God's grace and we need to abound in God's grace. And I am thankful for God's grace. But Moses just doesn't stop there. Moses paints the full picture. He doesn't just quote part of the verse. He quotes all of what God says. He says, you are merciful, but you are just. He says, you are forgiving sin and rebellion, and yet you will hold the guilty responsible for their sin. You're not going to by no means clearing the guilty. So Moses understands God is merciful and God is just. And he believes that God is merciful. And because he has shown himself merciful before, he trusts in God's mercy. Verse 19, he says, Pardon, I beseech the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your mercy, as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God, you've shown them mercy before. Would you show them mercy again? Would you pardon them? He does not remove the consequences or the culpability. That's verse 18, where he talks about by no means clearing the guilty. Moses is not saying, just let him get off, a little slap on the wrist, say, oh, don't do that again. He says, there's to be consequences, and I understand that. But God, don't wipe them out. Don't start over with me. Lord, don't, don't annihilate, have a mass genocide here. He says, deal with, the, deal with the guilty. Deal with the ones who should have responded correctly. But don't, don't wipe everybody out. And we know that God is going to respond to that. Moses acknowledges that God is both just and merciful. God's mercy, and it's important for us to understand, God's mercy does not eliminate justice. We often tend to reduce God to one size, uh, to, down to our size in one direction or the other. We tend to either want to see God as all grace or all justice. Either we see him as a God who is all justice, ready to condemn us for the least infraction and caring about the fate, has no care about the fate to whom, you know, he's created, to, the, to us. In other words, we're looking and saying, God doesn't really care about me. He's just going to punish me. 
And so therefore we live in fear because we're always afraid that we're going to do something wrong. We should be wise. We should not just jump in. We should be thinking through, is this sin? Is this wrong? Do we, do we just view God as all justice? This plays into how we parent even. If we're just all about justice. On the flip side, we can see ourselves conversely, and again, this is where our culture tends to lie, we think of God as just being love and compassionate, easily satisfied by a cursory nod from us in his direction while we continue to live in rebellion against him. In other words, I'm going to keep doing sin. I'm going to keep doing what I'm wrong. Oh yeah, you're right, God. I'm sorry. That was wrong. Okay, good. And we have this cheap grace. We're just like, oh yeah, my bad. You know, I'll work on it later. And I'm going to go right back to it. Not realizing that God is just and he will punish sin and he will deal with unconfessed sin. We have to see both, and God is both merciful and just. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Ian Duguid, he's a, one of the commentators I use. He says, neither of these pictures is biblical. God is indeed slow to anger, compassionate, and gracious toward his people. Yet, he is also a God of flaming and uncompromised justice who cannot simply ignore rebellion and sin. Moses gets this. And that's why Moses intercedes on behalf of his people, because he knows there's hope, and yet he realizes that there's a horrific consequence about to come. And he says, God, I want you to be glorified. Don't just wipe them out. Don't just flame them all, God. Please do what is best for your glory. And so God has this divine pardon and punishment that we talked about previously in verses 20 through 39. He says, verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned, notice, according to your word. There is a whole bunch to discuss on the sovereignty of God and the dynamics of man's prayer and how that impacts God's sovereignty. We're not going to take time to do that. All we know right here is that based on Moses' intercessory prayer, God adjusted his punishment. It does impact God. And we have a responsibility to intercede on behalf of a broken and fallen people. We need to be interceding. We need to be praying for people. Moses' prayer affected God as desires. God was influenced by, in his conduct, by the intercession of the righteous one. Not of, not of the, the one who's not righteous and all of a sudden decides that God's a genie in a bottle and I've got to quick rub the lamp and hope to get everything right. No, this is the intercession of a righteous. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This, is in no way, no way, this in no way means, there we go, that was hard to say, that Israel's punishment will be avoided or canceled. We understand that. But that God will maintain his current relationship with Israel by his side. God continues the covenant promises to the, to the people of Israel. It's going to be delayed for 40 years, but he's going to maintain that relationship with him. So this demands a response. A response is going to be required. How, how are the people going to respond? We see how Moses responded. When Moses heard God's punishment upon the people, the people his response is to pray. To pray to God for the people. Think about that for a moment. What is the response of God? What is God's punishment to humanity? It is separation from him. It is that they are to be forever away from God. 
because of their sin, because of their brokenness. We ought to respond like Moses. We ought to be praying fervently for the souls of humanity. Not just getting frustrated with them, but realizing the reason that they have different perspectives and worldviews, why they may vote differently than you, why they may have a, a different political agenda, why they may want to see different things play out, is because they have a different worldview, because their heart has not been reconciled to God like yours has. And the only thing that reconciles that is the gospel. And so if we want to see humanity reconciled with God, then we need to be interceding daily for the souls of people we know and the souls of people we don't know that the gospel may go forward powerfully. But how do the people respond when they hear the punishment of God upon them? Verse 39, we're going to see that it's going to be time. Is it time for revival? You would think... You would think that they're going to hear it and it's time for revival or is it going to be time for more rebellion? Verse 39, we have the, the, Moses is going to convey the words to the people. Moses told the people, told them saying, these children of Israel, that the people mourned greatly. And so as Moses tells them what God says, the people mourn. And you're thinking like I am. All right, they've got it. There, there's this great revival that's about to take place here. The problem is that the mourning, it does not refer to an, uh, it refers, does not to an inner sadness or a remorse, but it refers to an outer action demonstrating. And you may say, well, what is that? The word that's, the word that's used here is the word that is often used for those who would do those ritual mournings. The mourning rites for a dead person where they would, oh, they would weep and they would wail. Oh, this is so bad. This is so bad. And they would cry. And pastors talked about it multiple times when the, the, the mourners would go around the people who are dying and you would pay to have people come and mourn. This was that idea that, oh, there's this great tragedy and we've got to just wail out loud because if we wail loud and hard enough and we make a big enough scene, then everything will be okay. Their focus is not, their focus of the, of the word is on an external action to avert a disaster. They're just looking and saying, okay, this is what we've got to do. This is the next hoop we've got to jump through to make God happy. If we show him that we're sad, then he'll be okay and he'll let us go into the promised land. They engaged in this morning as an attempt to change God's mind since they are either unwilling or unable to accept the seriousness of their rebellion. Let that sink in for a second. They are so unwilling to accept, or maybe just unable and say, there's no way that God would do this to us. There's no way. God has, God has said to our forefathers, we're going into this land. And they're so unwilling to accept the God of the universe who is leading them and providing them and providentially caring for them and said, nope, you're done. You're out. They're so unwilling to accept that, that they're going to do these, these rituals in order to try and change God's mind rather than the repentance that was necessary. So there is this mourning that occurs. Well, what happens the morning after the morning? Look in verse number 40. Verses 40 to 43. It says, And they rose up early in the morning, 
And they got up to the top of the mountain saying, Lo, Moses, hey, we're here. And we're going to go to the place where the Lord has promised. We're ready. Take us in, Moses. We're going to follow your leadership. Because now we know that we can go in. Okay. That's what you think. You say you're ready to go in. It sounds noble. But you are right now, by that statement, disobeying God's command. Remember verse 25? He says, tomorrow, Moses, tomorrow, turn you and get into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. That's what I've commanded. That is what is going to happen. You are to get out of the promised land area and you are going to go back the way that they want to go. They want to go toward Egypt. You're going to go back toward Egypt. You're going to go back into the wilderness. So now they're saying, we're going to do this, God. We're going to disobey you in utter belief that you're going to take care of us. It's not making sense. They're, they're, they're being illogical again. They're attempting to downplay the seriousness of God's judgment. He doesn't really mean it. He, he's just testing us to see if we're going to go into the land. No, God says you're not going in. Get to the, get to the wilderness. No, 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 it's not that bad. It can't, all we did was grumble and complain. Yeah, we were thinking about Stone and Moses, but we were, you know, we're not going to really do that. And they downplay the seriousness of God's judgment. They announce to Moses that they're present. They're here. We're ready to go into the promised land now. They simply acknowledge their sin. They do acknowledge it. And they assume then that it's all good. Notice what they say in verse, the end of verse 40. For we have sinned. They're not saying that they didn't sin. The problem is, is that the sins that they had already committed, God has said, that's it. His justice is going to be meted out. There's remorse, there's sadness, but there's not a change in direction. There's not a repentance. Because remember, the reason that they're, they're, not, they're not going in is because of their unbelief. That God said this, they did not believe it, they did not trust in what God has said, and therefore they're, they're being punished for that. Now God is saying, you are not going in. What do they not do? They don't believe again. It's the same exact sin. They're doing the exact same thing. We didn't believe you had the power to take us in, but now we don't believe that you're actually going to discipline us. That you're actually going to keep us out. And their view was simply about changing their minds, not their hearts. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we look and go, oh, okay, I'll just ascend to, I'll just change, yeah, I'll try and figure it out and do, my, do better on myself. Rather than looking and saying, no, this is what God says. God has said this is wrong. I need to change to align with God, not just what mankind says. They wanted cheap grace. And that's what they were hoping for, that God would just turn a blind eye and say, okay, that's fine. You, boys will be boys. Or, you know, you guys, you could have done better, but, you know, and, and let them in. And God said, no. I am merciful. I'm not going to wipe you all out, but there is going to be a punishment. We're not going in right now. And they're, they're still looking. And Moses knew that it wasn't going to cut it. Look at what Moses says. He says in verse 41, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? You're breaking God's law again. You're doing it again. Why would you do that? Before you go... Before you would go, you would not go. It should say would not go. Before you would not go because of unbelief. Now you believe that God is going to prosper you when he says he won't. That's still unbelief. What are you thinking of doing will not prosper. 
He says, you're, you're not going to succeed. God is not going, uh, verse, end of verse 41, it shall not prosper. Because going against the commandment of the Lord does not prosper us. To look and to say, well, I can just do it my own way. I can figure it out my own way. And, and leave God out of it is not prosperous. That's part of the road to ruin. They're still on that road. They are heading down a deep path. They, Moses is going to caution them. He's going to say, don't, don't go there. Don't do it. Don't go to the promised land. Don't take it. What has changed? Because earlier Moses was like, yes, let's go. Now he's saying, don't go. What's changed? It's their rebellion. It's the fact that the Lord is not with them. This is the first time that they're going to be told that God's not with you. Think about that for a moment. They're not hearing that. But Moses looks at them and says, go not up, verse 42, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites, the Canaanites, they're there before you. And you shall fall by the sword because you turned away from the Lord. You rebelled against him. Therefore, the Lord will not be with you. That's the difference. God is saying don't go because God's not in this. God's not with you. The first time that they're not going to have the protection of God. And you can hear the people, come on Moses, really? The people saying, God, God's always had our back. Even, even when we've rebelled. Even when we whine and we, and then what do they do? They're taking advantage of God's grace and mercy. They're, they're, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin that God's grace can abound? God forbid, may, may it never be. We're not supposed to just look and say, well, okay, you didn't punish me before, so I can just keep doing this. That's cheap grace. That's not balancing God's mercy and God's justice. Moses is looking and saying, go to the wilderness. Don't go to the mountains. Don't go to the promised land because God is not with you there. The ark and the Moses, the ark and the Moses, the Moses does not go with the ark, okay? Notice in, in verse, 40, uh, for, verse 44. But they presumed to go up to the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of camp. The entire camp didn't go. There's still a camp there. There wasn't the big processionals. There wasn't all the things that were already ordered by God for the trumpets to blow and the individuals to march in order to go to war. It wasn't all there. What you had was a bunch of people presuming that they knew better than God, that they did not have to follow God's ways, God's words, God's punishment, God's consequences. They didn't have to experience and deal with that. They could do their own thing. And in doing so, they find themselves in a world of hurt. They find themselves in full-blown rebellion. There wasn't revival, the opportunity to truly repent and get right with God and experience the grace of God and accept the consequences for their actions because they were culpable before God for the choices that they had made. Instead, they pushed themselves further from God and say, God really doesn't know what's best. God's word is not valid. I am going to rebel further against God. And that's what you have in verse 44 and 45, where Israel presumes to go up. The word is a heedless or a reckless action. In their arrogance, they do what they believe is right. 
not what God and his leaders say is right. Really, that's the whole story up to this point, that Israel's unwillingness to listen to the words of Moses and by extension God. Why do they do that? Because they think they know better. And don't we still face that same difficulties today? I know I do. There are moments where I think that my engineering of things so that I can enjoy the sinful pleasures I struggle with, that I think that I know better than God. That I think that, I, you know, when I look around our society and our world, God, if this is your providential plan, I think I might know better than you. God, you might have got this one wrong. And we have those potentially damning thoughts pop into our minds. And we can't enact on them, but yet these individuals did. And what happens is they get beat down. The result of their arrogance is that they are humiliated and that they are crushed. Verse 45, Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites, which dwelt in the hill, and they smote them and they discomfited them. They, they made it very discom- uncomfortable for them. They beat them down. They chased them out. They killed a number of them and they got, they got rid of them. Even unto Hormah. And you might look and go, well, okay, even unto Hormah? Why, you know, it comes up a couple days, seven other times in the Old Testament, Hormah. Nothing really spectacular about it. But what's really interesting about the word, the word Hormah, the, the root word at its basic meaning means this, destruction. That these people came down and destroyed, brought them to the place of destruction. Why? Because God wasn't with them. Because they chose to do it their way. They chose to head down the road of ruin and rebellion against God, not following God's way, not listening to God's person, to God's leaders, and taking God's word and rejecting it and doing their own thing. We need to be very careful because that is a selfish perspective that has damning consequences. You know, when we put the whole chapter together, looking today at the responses of these individuals, when we're confronted with the sinful brokenness of humanity, that's what Moses is confronted with. How does he respond? He responds by selfishly, selflessly, excuse me, selflessly fighting for the souls of mankind through intercession. Faced every single day with the brokenness of humanity. And we have this answer through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you, do I intercede for our friends, our neighbors, our family, our coworkers? More than a more than a glance every once in a while and say, Oh Lord, I pray that you would save them but to truly pour out our souls to God for the salvation of these people, of our culture, of our, of our community, of our country. It's not just a big prayer party that says, okay, Lord, heal our land. It is a prayer dedicated to, Lord, we are begging for you to save souls, to mend in a precise and beautiful way that only you can the hearts, the sinfulness of humanity. 
when the Jews were confronted with their brokenness, when they were told, you're not going into the land, they responded very differently. They ended up being very selfish. And I think when we are brought forward and we see the brokenness of humanity, we see our brokenness at times. I'm so thankful that my brokenness has been laid at the foot of the cross. And yet I still struggle. And I have to fight the selfish temptation to arrogantly live for myself and against God's word. Every day, fighting against my selfishness to do my own thing, to live my own way, to rebel against God's word, and to selflessly pray for others. The whole chapter boils down to a whole bunch of people who could have got right with God, may not experience the full-blown blessings, but they wouldn't have faced the death and the consequences because they chose not to fight for God. They chose to fight for themselves. Selfish, selfless, or selfish. Where do you find yourself? I know where I battle. And actually my selfishness tends to infect my selfless prayer for others. I pray that as we go forward this week, that we will be selfless in our prayers, that they will be for the many souls who are lost and dying in this country and around the world who truly need Jesus Christ. And that I will selflessly fight against my selfishness to live just for me. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to truly lift up those who need salvation. God, I pray that you would save souls in our community, that you would give us boldness to be able to pray, that you would give us boldness to be able to share, and God, that we would see people come to know you as Savior, because Lord, that's what our culture needs. That's what our neighbors need. That's what our friends need. That's what our families need. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help that gospel to not just stop at salvation, Lord, but help the gospel to penetrate my life and the lives of these listening, that we might fight our selfish nature and that we might live for you rather than just ourselves, that we might not rebel against your word, but we might humbly submit to it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its pointedness. Help us to live it out day by day, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us.